Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. This week's guest is libertarian thinker Matt Kibbe. That conversation is next. But first, I want to make sure you're familiar with Curtis King, a guy who lived in Iowa in the 1800s. Dave Matthews and his wife certainly are. They stumbled upon a historical marker in the middle of Iowa and discovered who Curtis King was, a man who at the age of 80 decided to sign up to fight in the American Civil War. Curtis King came from a strong bloodline as he was a direct descendant of Pocahontas on his mother's side. His paternal grandfather was supposedly six and a half feet tall and lived to be 115 years old. And King's family claimed that he had an uncle in Ireland who was over seven feet tall. Records show that his mother lived to the age of 103. I mean, talk about some longevity, especially for back then. My goodness. Well, in honor of King's service to our nation, serving in the 37th Iowa, the Regiment of Silver Grays, the Curtis King is a blend of smooth, full-city roasted Ethiopian beans blended with bold, sweet French-roasted Sumatran beans. Another great brew from American Pride Roasters Coffee. I do hope that you'll give it a try, along with all the other memorable blends waiting for you at aprcoffee.com. Be sure to use promo code ATM at checkout, and you're going to get yourself 10% off your entire order. That's aprcoffee.com, promo code ATM. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. This week, my guest is Matt Kibbe, who is known primarily for his political activism, his libertarian point of view. Well, there's so much more to this guy. We had a great conversation. Thanks for making time. Let's get it started right here on At The Mic. Joined in our Dallas studios here at The Blaze, Matt Kibbe. This is awesome, dude. I just found out yesterday that you were going to be in town, and I'm so glad... You could make time. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, it's it's great to be here, and thanks for reaching out. Absolutely. Matt Kibbe, host of Kibbe on Liberty on the Blaze TV and Podcast Network. Uh, I, man, I tell you, I, I know you and I could talk forever about politics and uh, just kind of our own worldview, which I feel is very similar. But I want to talk about your life. I mean, I want to go back to the beginning. I, I got to point this out. This is awesome. This Wikipedia entry for you says that your year of birth is either 1963 or 1964. I've got to be honest, I don't know that there's anybody who I've ever seen, uh, we're not really sure what year he was born, you know, that hasn't been within, you know, maybe three centuries ago or something. So what's up with that, man? Well, well you know what's funny about that is uh, <laughs> uh, until recently, um, someone on my team eventually fixed this, but until recently... Wikipedia had me at like 75 years old or something. Oh, wow. And people would compliment me sort of and say, you don't look as bad as I thought you would. <laughs> so, you know, I, I used to think more of Wikipedia. I used to be a big Wikipedia fan, but it I feel like it's getting manipulated now. But it's 1963. Okay. All right. And, very good. But, you know, that ballpark, 63, 64, was better than... 1947 or whatever they had what before. it was before so. okay you're born in daytona beach florida yep yep so my my dad uh moved around a lot he was an engineer he was working for ford he was actually working on the ford mustang oh, in wow. daytona beach oh. uh back in the og days of of the mustang <laughs> oh, uh, but he got he got transferred to detroit 
and then to Erie, Pennsylvania, and and so I, I moved around a lot when I was right. a kid. I don't I don't have like a home if that makes sense. I I have various places and snapshots of my life, but I don't I don't get to go home and like oh this is where I grew up. Mm-hmm. How about your earliest memory from growing up? Do you remember that? I don't remember Florida at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of snapshot memories, but I remember uh, being outside of Detroit during the riots. Oh, wow. I was I was suddenly like, I don't know what I would have been, um, five or six or something like that. And I just remember everyone freaking out. Yeah. And and we weren't, we weren't in downtown Detroit, but I, I remember something's happening. I don't know what it is, but everybody's really anxious. Yeah, yeah. I think kids really pick up on what their parents are feeling. And so it's no shock that that, would, that, that era in time would, would really stick with you. Um, I, I know that you went to, correct me if I'm wrong, you went to George Mason University. Grove City College Gro- for okay. undergrad. Okay. Yeah. Grove City. Where is Grove City? I hear about it all the time from so many people that I admire. But where is it? You have to know about Grove City. Grove City is halfway between Erie and Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania. Okay. And it is, if you've ever heard of Hillsdale College, yes. Grove City is quite similar. It, uh-huh. was, it was founded and financed by by Pew, J. Howard Pew, um, the, who was, unlike the Pew Foundation, a very libertarian, self-made, rugged, individualist entrepreneur. Huh. And it, it's always been a private university. Um, it's Christian based, but but um, most interesting to me, it has one of the robust Austrian economics programs in the country. Nice. So it's it's it was a it was a, a weird thing back then. It's not so weird now. Like there's other places you could go for that mix, but back then it was that it was, was sort the place. Of, yeah. Huh. So then you went to George Mason University, who I contend is one of our top three most underrated founders. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> Is it you know? You think of these schools, right? And and they they don't reflect the people they're named after whatsoever. Yeah. Is George Mason like that, or it it it, it reflects um, George Mason's values almost by accident because George Mason was just another state school, and in in the early 1980s, two things happened. James Buchanan, who would go on to win the Nobel Prize in public choice theory, um, moved to George Mason. And also, um, Charles Koch set up an Austrian economics program. Oh, wow. So a lot of, if you're, if you're into Austrian economics and, <laughs> and uh, academic type stuff, a lot of the smartest young academics came out of the George Mason program. And I went there to sort of follow the breadcrumbs for Austrian economics. Okay, okay. So... You've held many positions, I guess, inside the Beltway, as they say. Um, I mean, you've worked in the halls of Congress. I, I, I mean, I, I did not realize, I'm sorry for being ignorant, but I didn't realize how many things you have done. And obviously, it, it, they're all kind of centered around economics. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. is it fair to say that you're kind of a policy wonk or economic policy wonk? Uh, you know, I'm a recovering policy wonk. <laughs> yeah. And okay. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Because I, I I went to to Mason and I wanted to be an academic. I was totally turned off by the the nasty politics of academia, which today absolutely turns out to be a smart decision. I I couldn't imagine being in academia today. Mm-hmm. And and George Mason is right outside the Beltway in Washington D.C. So. 
DC, as you know, is kind of a Death Star. It it draws you <laughs> it draws you yeah. in, and once their their claws are into you, you can't get out again. Yeah. So as an economist, I I got into public policy, um, and I was so I went from very wonky, esoteric, academic stuff to policy stuff. And you know, over time, I I feel like early 1989, 1988, something like that. I wrote my first op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Oh, cool. 800 words. Wow. And so you go from like 30 pages that nobody understands to 800 words. And then yeah. I just did the math. I'm like, I think I can reach a lot more people if I try to speak English. So that <laughs> that was that was transformational for my career. But yeah, like I have a, I have a closet full of an embarrassing jobs that I had. Like I was the... Um, after I left academia, I was a chief economist at the Republican National Committee under, if you remember, a guy named Lee Atwater. Uh-huh. So that's like uh, 1988, 89, something like that. Um, I left there to go to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and so I was a budget director there. And then I became a chief of staff on Capitol Hill. So when I was young, I'm, and, and is, I'm still like in my mid-20s at this point, so mm-hmm. I, was, I was a climber when I was a kid, uh, for better or worse, but... One, one thing I managed to do, uh, I, I think all of those experiences are essential for how, how you understand the world. And I sort of, I, I get frustrated with conservatives and libertarians who won't sort of get their hands dirty in the process. Because I'm like, you're trying to fix the process, but you don't even understand how these guys actually operate. So, mm-hmm. so I did politics, I did business community, I did Capitol Hill. And those are those are nice ways to understand sort of the incentives and the institutions and the corruptions that, that drive all that stuff. It was important to me, but but the thing that you have to do if you go to Washington D.C. is you have to be willing to say no, mm. and it's very difficult to say no in Washington D.C. If you say yes to certain things, you can make a lot of money, mm. you can be a superstar, you can um, do all sorts of things, you can become a multimillionaire just feeding off of the system. Um, but remember, like in 1989, I believe that's the year that George H.W. Bush broke his No New Taxes pledge. Okay. I happened to be the guy that was responsible for defending that decision. And I went to my boss, who's a fantastic guy, and I said, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> oh, no. And he was good enough to say, um, you know what, Matt, I'm going to let you off the hook. Because when you go to work at the RNC, you commit to a two-year cycle, the political cycle. And, and I was wow. like, I don't think I can do this. And, right. and so he let, me, he let me free. And I jumped from the frying pan into the fire because the chamber, the chamber has on their logo, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Spirit of Enterprise right on their logo. And within a couple years there, um, obviously George H.W. Bush lost and Bill Clinton won. Mm-hmm. And they went from fairly conservative, free enterprise, free market to... Let's fully embrace Hillary Care. Mm. And I was the budget director. And you were back in the same kind of position. So I, I went to an, another great boss, uh, a guy named Richard Ron, and I, I said, who's a very great free market economist, I said, Richard, I can't do this. So part, part, of, the, part of my experience at Washington, D.C. was always being willing to, to walk away in, a, in an appropriate way. Like, don't be a jerk. Right. Don't create drama, but just like if you've took that job and you can't do that job anymore, you have to be willing to walk away from it. Well said. Uh, if if you had to explain what it's like working in Washington D.C. and 
I guess, one or two sentences. How would you explain that experience? How long were you working there in D.C.? So, um, I mean, I still live in D.C. You still live there. God, God help me. But <laughs> I'm trying to convince my wife to let us leave, but she loves our Come house. Come to Texas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can buy more house here. You I know. sell that, take the cash, and buy something here. Um, but <laughs> um, so I was uh, kind of like my whole career because after that, you know, eventually I founded Freedom Works. Right. And that was a thing, but that was all inside the Beltway stuff, even though Freedom Works was giving a voice to people outside the Beltway. Um, so I've been there this whole time. And, and, and what's it like um, if you're not, like I'm sort of a libertarian curmudgeon. So I'm comfortable being alone. Mm-hmm. I don't wanna be alone. I, w- I would love to, to have a community of colleagues that, that shared my values, but there's not a lot of that in DC. Yeah, that's called having principle, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> something. I mean. It, I mean, my wife has a different word for no, it. Oh, no. <laughs> which we won't use on this family program. <laughs> That's good. Okay. So let's see here. Um, you mentioned Freedom Works. That's where I first learned who you were through that. I don't know if you want to talk about that era. It just seems like there was a lot of lot happening during that time. I, and I honestly, I'm not playing stupid. I don't know what went down there. Yeah, I yeah. just know as an outsider looking in, I just know I identified Matt Kibbe with that organization and then then you're gone. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll say this about it, and, and it's related, I think, to what we were just talking about. The FreedomWorks mission, at, uh, probably around the time you discovered it and, and Glenn Beck and I and the organizations were very involved and we were building the Tea Party movement, yeah. and there was a set of values that I think animated that movement. I mean, you wrote a book uh, about the Tea Party movement yeah. right then, back around 2010 or so. Yeah, yeah, and and I I'm so proud of what we accomplished. Um, I'm disappointed that we didn't get further along, but you know what happened was the Tea Party movement became this very surprisingly powerful force in politics. Mm-hmm. We we were we were transforming the landscape. And in the process, we were like getting involved in in Republican primaries, for for mostly for good at the time. But eventually, I think politics corrupted us. Wow. So we we were intimately involved in in Mike Lee's primary race, uh-huh. and he was the first shot across the bow when Mike Lee uh, beat an 18 year incumbent in Utah to became the first Tea Party senator. Aha! Uh-huh. Yeah, that's and, right. And and in hindsight, um, I think that scared a lot of people, including some some people I thought were friends on, on my board of directors. Ugh. And you were, you were talking about toppling the entire Republican power structure. And I naively thought that, that we were all on the same page. And uh-huh. it, tur- it turns out that there are a lot of powerful interests in Washington that don't want to change things. Mm-hmm. But also internally, like I, I think the thing that ultimately killed the Tea Party movement, not, not just Freedom Works, but the, the entire movement is we got too obsessed with politics. Mm. And at one point it was sort of a righteous project because you had guys like Mike Lee that you knew you could be proud of. You felt like he was one of us. Um, you know, people can fool you, but it turns out that that one was right. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I still feel good about Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and I felt great about Justin Amash and, and a few others, but you know, you start to run out of names before you run out of <laughs> as, fingers. As I always say on Twitter, whenever I tweet out a video of a politician doing something or saying something really good, 
I, I, I'm always careful to point out, oh, look, so and so is proving once again they are one of the five remaining people in DC that still yeah. care, you yeah. know? <laughs> but, it, it, and, I, and this was Glenn's point with the 912 project from day one. It has to be about values, it can't be about politics. Um, but as we were successful in politics, as a Tea Party movement became this, you know, the, the, the media made Tea Party into a political party, yeah. even though the name had nothing to do with party or politics. Mm-hmm. And at some point it was expected that we're just going to support the Republican ticket. <laughs> and so, so Mitt Romney for president comes along and I'm like, we're not doing that. <laughs> And that, and that was that was kind of our Achilles heel, you know, like the, the top of the ticket very much defines the party. And if we had been able to identify a candidate that better represented those values, but we we really didn't have time. Like if you want to do politics, it's a career thing and you need to start building someone when they're in their 20s. And so by the time they're ready to run. But I, I've That's I've since point. I've since decided that. It was a noble experiment, but politics is not the answer. I mean, I care about better guys winning and bad guys losing, but if we don't get upstream of that, if we don't get into the popular culture, yeah, yeah, if, if we don't like focus on on values and stories that can reach people outside of our 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 community, like constitutional conservative libertarian, we're always going to lose. Yeah, because that's what you know what would hold pretender Tea Party candidates accountable over time would be a sustainable community based on values. Because mm-hmm. they, they will pretend to be us if the incentives align, um, but if if your goal is to just elect 100 Mike Lees to the U.S. Senate, um, I got news, you're going to be dead before you get it done. Right, right. No, it's a fair point. So you mentioned your wife, Terry. Yeah. How long have you guys been married? Um, forever. Yeah. And, and she, for you. she likes to joke that, that <laughs> I met her when she was 12, which Uh-oh. isn't, which isn't technically true, but we've been married 35 years. All right. Congratulations. Uh, college, man. college sweethearts. Okay. That's where y'all met then? Yeah. Okay. So I met her when she was a freshman in college. So we've literally been together forever. That's and, so cool. And, um, we now work together, which is really cool. So we, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Cause, uh, I reached out to both of y'all. To hopefully set this up, and so I was glad to make that happen. I thought, hey, hey, is that the same Terry? So yeah, it worked out. That's it's, cool. It's funny, like um, Terry doesn't do my schedule because I, <laughs> I technically and um, specifically work for her at, at <laughs> Free the People. But yeah, tell us about that group. Yeah. She she controls my schedule, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. But isn't that the job of wives? I'm I'm going to be honest here. I mean, my wife. Like, I forget everything. Yeah. She's like, no, we have to be here. We have this on Saturday. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's right, you know. We're, <laughs> we're, we've, we've started, and it, it's, um, it's kind of transformational. We started giving talks together um, by accident, but those talks have turned into a book project called Love, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Oh, wow. And, do, do we have a release date on that? Uh, not at no. all. Okay, <laughs> but be looking for it. Be, okay. be looking for it. But it's um, <laughs> the the idea is to tell personal stories about our life that um, somewhere in that, that personal story is an important story about um, the the values that that hold us together, and and it sort of starts off with the fact that you know our marriage is is very much a union of two very different people. Hmm. 
And so like, I'm very right brained. I'm, I'm creative. I'm impulsive. I'm <laughs> philosophical. Um, she thinks I'm kind of reckless <laughs> and she's, she's an engineer by training. Okay. Um, and so she's, um, she's everything that I'm not when it comes to, comes to organization and planning. I, I think she's too conservative and she thinks I'm too crazy, but the, the combination is a very powerful thing. That's cool, man. And I, I think that's that's true about a good marriage, but it's also true about people's willingness to work together. Mm-hmm. It's difficult, right? Yep. It's difficult to find common ground with people, even in your neighborhood or your community or your city. But but I think the the lesson, and I go back to the Tea Party movement. Like mm-hmm. we we took a lot of risks to work together as a community, but together was so much more powerful than what any one of us could have done. And it, by the way, there's sort of an Austrian economics point in there. This is one of the things my wife yells at me. I always quote dead people. <laughs> I always quote dead people. But you know, um, Hayek, when he was trying to explain to communists why they couldn't centrally plan the economy, he's like, knowledge isn't this thing out there. It is um, embedded in very specific people. So we all have personal knowledge, local knowledge, mm. aspirations, goals that are distributed throughout a community and certainly a, throughout an economy. And if you try to replace the process of people trying to figure stuff out with all of that unique ability and knowledge, you will never get to the big and beautiful things that happen when people are free. And you can replace it with a central plan. You're always gonna be wrong because you don't know enough, but it also just, it destroys the, the beauty that comes from cooperation. Uh-huh. So that's, um, I hadn't really thought about that in the context of marriage, so I guess that's going to go in the book now. And, yeah. Uh, and Terry and I will argue about why I'm quoting Hayek in a book about our marriage. I love it. No, I can't wait for this book. And uh, you, you can use this uh, conversation as a refresher for your memory bank when you're, when you're putting uh, pen to paper for this kind of story here. So you obviously talk a lot about Friedrich Hayek and Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Friend, yeah. I totally knew when I asked you this question off air. I totally knew it was going to be Atlas Shrugged as your favorite book. Yeah. I mean, it's, you got to read that y'all. And, and, and look, if you don't want to read this really thick book and, and I, I, people that skip, you know, the, the scene of Congress and all that stuff, look, get, there is, this is still available. I haven't checked it in a while, but there is a 50 CD set so uh, it may be harder finding a CD player than the CDs right now, but right, uh, right, anyhow, right. that is a, an option available, or or I'm sure it's on Kindle or Audible, you know, where you can listen to it. Yeah. But uh, it's a must. You got to absorb this because we live it every day. That that's the, perhaps the depressing part, and and she she really had some foresight on a lot of things we're living today. But the depressing thing it's a it's a dystopian novel um, where. Um, the good news is that the good guys win at the end, but mm-hmm. it's a dystopian novel where everything that we fight every day about government power, about about this sort of um, socialist philosophy that that sort of rots people's brains, mm-hmm. and and once once you've broken their brains, they start um, complying to in- increasingly repugnant sort of things that the government imposes on them. And haven't it's, we seen that? so clearly in the last couple of years. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> I, and like I've been saying this ever since the Tea Party, but I'm like um I feel like we're living in Atlas Shrugged mm-hmm. 
And remember, like early tea parties, um, um, you would see these signs, um, who is John Galt and is Atlas Shrugging and all that sort of stuff. So that, <laughs> that was definitely part of the mix yeah. um, that, that led to this, this modern revolution. But I, I, have, a, I have a cool story about, about Ayn Rand. Um, I didn't actually discover Atlas Shrugged or any of her other books. I discovered her through the liner notes on a rock album by the band Rush. And some, some <laughs> a, a few of your listeners are nodding their heads because this, it's a, it's a niche story that people my age because I'm I'm old enough that that you would buy records on vinyl when you're a kid, and when I was 13 years old, I found this album by Rush 2112. It wasn't the one I wanted, but it had a really cool album cover, so I bought it. <laughs> I'm a roll the bones guy. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Underrated album. Yeah. And I. I and I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'll get into this more, but um, 2112 is is dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. Wow. The, the genius of Ayn Rand. I got to go and pay attention to these lyrics on that. And um, I have no it's, idea. It's actually the, the first side, the, the 2112 suite is actually aggressively borrowed from Ayn Rand's novella Anthem. And wow. so it's this futuristic world. It's like it's like Anthem in space, basically. And at the time, it turns out that the drummer who was writing the lyrics, Neil Peart, um, who's a personal hero of mine, uh. was really into Ayn Rand and into individualism, and, and so he put that on there. And by the way, that it, like, it, it almost destroyed their career acknowledging Ayn Rand because she was, um, talk about cancel culture, she, she was heavily demonized, particularly when Atlas came out, um, and which makes the fact that it's such a wildly successful commercial book all that more right. interesting because right. all of the experts said that it was awful and repugnant and you know similar to what people might say about all of us today <laughs> in the right. cancel culture. And um, there was this particularly awful review of 2112 in, in what was then the Rolling Stone of the time, New, New Music Express, where they called Neil, Neil Peart and his colleagues Nazis for, for liking Ayn Rand. Wow! I and am if, not familiar with this at all. And if you know anything about Ayn Rand, she's the opposite of Nazis. Yeah. She's a young Jewish girl that fled the Bolshevik Revolution, came to the United States, wildly impressive self-made woman. And um, it's, it's doubly repugnant because the lead singer of Rush, Getty Lee, mm -hmm. his parents met at Auschwitz. So they like it. It cut them very deep, I and I think bet. in a lot of ways it it sort of defined their career. They got they got a little more independent, but even Neil Peart, who had dedicated this album to Ayn Rand, got a little bit defensive about it. So he would over time start defining himself as as a bleeding heart libertarian, so that he because he wanted people to know that libertarians care about people too, mm -hmm. as if that wasn't always true, but. Right. But they, but they struggled with that thing. Wow, that is, that's fascinating. Seriously, Matt. Um, and and it, you mentioned how we're living, we're living Atlas Shrugged today. I, my brain goes back and forth depending on what I'm reading in the news. My brain either flashes to a scene in Atlas Shrugged or flashes to a scene more often than not to Idiocracy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh man. We are living both of those worlds every day, man. It's. <laughs> I, you know, I hated I hated Idiocracy when it came out. Really? Because it it made me sad. Like I'm like this isn't funny at all. And and now I understand why I didn't like it because it, sort of like Atlas Shrugged, 
it was far more real than yeah. perhaps was intended because I, I do feel like we're living through idiocracy and it's um it's frustrating but you know mm -hmm. of course the the opportunity to to change you know don't worry about the masses so much start start at the margins start about start with people that want to think mm -hmm. start with young people that are questioning the official narrative and i think you know going back to cancel culture um the script of of antifa goes all the way back to world war ii but it also would go back to 76 when this article was written about rush just call them nazis and people will like stay away from them mm -hmm. um i feel like they've overplayed their hand today hmm. because today the definition of a nazi is anybody who's not a full angry marxist right. maoist let's let's <laughs> let's let's use violence to destroy everybody that's not like us and I, I feel like they're they're pushing people in they're not pushing them our way so it's much so as over the top they're just like people are now like well surely there's more choices like if i don't want to be hitler do i have to be pol pot or could we find there must be something else so yeah, they're just <laughs> they're looking they're like I don't. I don't believe that those are my two choices. Right. 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 And by the way, you, you mentioned the um, the twenty one twelve reference in the liner notes. Uh, well, first of all, liner notes. I should just pause for a moment and just say, great place to find great information. I mean, that's where my wife and I came up with our oldest child's our you know, name. It was. It was. Uh, and we were mispronouncing it. Anyway, it's a long story. But I'm just telling you, people, you got to find that. That's what stinks in the digital age. You don't have the liner notes and the covers and the art and all that stuff. But what I was going to say is I didn't read Atlas Shrugged until, um, let's see, I'm 45 now. So I would have been 32 because it was on the commute in Manhattan 13 years ago uh, working for Glenn there. And I'd read it on the train, going and coming, going and coming. And... I was actually exposed to her name in college and had no clue because it was a joke. If anybody was going to school at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, the Daily Nebraska newspaper, every week, every week between when I was there, 94 to 98, this guy would take a personal ad out and it was like what he wanted in a woman, blah, blah, blah. And, and one of the things he mentioned in there was, you know, loves to read Ayn Rand for fun or something like that, you know? And like, we would, it was a joke to us because we thought, is this, is this a real person who's always yeah. posting this? Is this just for the fun of it? So I would see that name and, and that I didn't even look beyond that, that classified ad. And it took me 20 years before I finally got around to, to let's see what this, okay. Oh, I know that name. Anyway. Our first, um, uh, Terry's and my first Christmas together in college, um, which would have been like, I'm going to really date myself, probably 1983 or something like that. Um, she was probably expecting jewelry for Christmas. Oh, no. <laughs> and if I was smart at all, that's what it, she would have gotten. But, right. But she got a copy of Atlas Shrugged instead. Look at that. Look at that. And and when she didn't leave you after that, yeah. you knew. It was a test to see if. <laughs> well, I, I sort of knew she wasn't after my money because I couldn't have been any poor of a college student. She's, she's a special woman because she, she puts up with my weirdness. She might, she might even like it. She won't admit it, but she might actually like it. Okay. That's awesome, man. You had mentioned uh, the band Rush. 
Um, let's stay with music here because I saw somewhere you're a huge Grateful Dead fan. Absolutely. Okay, cool. So, I mean, you must have gotten to some of their concerts. Which, which, which makes no sense if you love Rush, but I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I have a very uh, curious and broad sense of, of yeah, music. And I got it. That's cool. So, I don't know, were you a deadhead? Did you go to the concerts? Yeah, so like um, <laughs> I was in, like in college, I wasn't a deadhead, but I listened to a lot of Grateful Dead. Particularly, they went through this acoustic country phase okay. in the early 1970s, and I, I really liked that, that, that music, like American Beauty, Working Man's Dead, classic Grateful Dead albums. Um, but actually, when I, when I, and, and I could never follow the dead because I was always like cleaning dishes or, or doing road work and stuff to, to pay for college. So the idea of, of uh, traveling around and following the dead when I was a kid, it didn't even occur to me that such a thing, <laughs> and, and probably a good decision that I didn't do that. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, fast forward to when I'm working in Washington, D.C. at the Republican National Committee, I start, I start going to dead concerts with a couple of my Republican buddies and if you've ever been to a dead show, it's it's transformative because um, the, I've heard this. The audience is a hundred percent into it. They know all the they know all the songs. They know all the lyrics. Um, but perhaps more, and this this I think is also a metaphor for the market process. The thing about the dead, which they they stole from jazz music, is that when Jerry Garcia would get on stage, he wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen. It wasn't particularly practiced. It was a little bit sloppy. They have a set list. Uh, they they supposedly never had a set list, and I think as <laughs> I think as they got older, they did. Okay, wow. But, but they would just go up and play, and oh. you know, a song that might be three minutes could turn into twenty minutes. Right, a little jam session or something. Yeah, and uh-huh. so they 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 were very much into you know sort of the spontaneous emergence of of whatever was going to happen. And, and, you know, musicians, great jazz musicians do this quite well. There's, there's some structure in a song that allows it to hold together, mm-hmm. um, but they can signal to each other and sort of follow each other down this exploratory path. And, and that's, that's why you would go to so many dead shows because you weren't sure what was going to happen and every huh. show is different than the last. That's and, cool, man. And, you know, s- some days it was really awful, like just, just a mess. But <laughs> some days it could be transformative. Which is sort of the opposite of going to a Rush concert. Um, Neil Peart famously, like one of the most technically skilled drummers in in all of all of rock history, um, very complicated songs, and their idea of a good show was successfully recreating every bit of it, which was very difficult to do. It's very complex progressive music. Um, the Dead had the opposite <laughs> philosophy. They they had explored like in their acid rock days, they had explored very complex structures but you know they they didn't do that they they wanted to see where they could go that's cool i like that i like that so let's stick with music for a moment if you could go back in history and meet one person you list john coltrane what a great answer man what about him that uh what what fascinates you um some some of the same stuff like like john coltrane was um, an insanely successful innovator in jazz music, and and there's a particular story. Um, fairly recently, um, they released a series of live albums that John Coltrane did with Miles Davis when he's still playing with Miles Davis Band. And Miles Davis famously got frustrated 
with Coltrane because he was doing exactly what I was describing with Jerry Garcia. <laughs> he'd, he'd go off on a five, six, seven minute solo within a song and and start doing things that, that the audience hated. Oh no. So, so you, you can listen to these um, these live albums and the, and the audience is like, they're whistling, which is, was their form of booing back then. They're booing John Coltrane, who today would be considered a total genius for doing right. this stuff. Right. But he was an innovator, right? And and it, it gets to sort of our understanding of disruptors and entrepreneurs. Mm. He was doing stuff that he thought was interesting, that that ultimately would radically transform not just jazz music, but music itself. But the audience wasn't quite there. And mm. even even so Miles Davis got frustrated and he would complain about it uh, backstage and in the press and Uh-oh. and John Coltrane died very young in yeah. his 40s from from liver cancer but Miles Davis went on to do to transform jazz again with with albums like Bitches Brew which is which is sort of fusion between rock and jazz and then um, a lot of jazz critics started saying the same things about Miles Davis that Miles Davis was saying about his friend John Coltrane that's the process. Like, uh, okay, I'm going to quote a dead economist again. Yes, I love it. Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> uh, when he talks about entrepreneurship, he's talking about about judgment. It's the entrepreneur is different because he can he or she can see around the corner of history and imagine a different future. Oh, that's well good. Well said. And there's this great line in human action where the entrepreneur proceeds forward even even as the masses laugh at him. And you think about think about the the greatest innovations of our time. Huh. Those people are are demonized, but that creative process is where really cool stuff comes from. That's really cool. I like that a lot, man. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna put you on the spot because you haven't had any time to think about this. But five possessions. If you're gonna keep five possessions, what would they be? Uh, is my wife a possession? <laughs> That's between you and her. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Take I, that off. Well, I think she, I think I'm her possession. There you but go. <laughs> I'm keeping my my wife and my three cats. Okay. And I don't know if that's three or one. Yeah. And honestly, I, I don't need anything else. Yeah. Honestly, okay. like, and, and this is probably like part of the getting older thing. Like, I think I would be comfortable uprooting. And starting over, but but those are the things I cherish. Sure, uh, absolutely, man. What is the most scared you've ever been, Matt Kibbe? Uh, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and when I was uh, almost exactly twenty years ago now, wow. Um, and I I I've talked about this quite a bit. My wife finally convinced me to talk about it. I I didn't want to for years because when I was a young professional. Being a stage four cancer survivor is is kind of a liability. Like people will mm. people will use it against you. Um, but it when I talk to young audiences, I tell the story because I was I was sort of blessed with um, getting diagnosed with stage. By the spoiler alert, I I survived. So this, thanks the, for throwing that in there. The, the drama is not going to be that intense because. <laughs> Because because I think people know how the story ends, right, but right, right. but you know I had I had a I had a, a a bizarre tumor in my abdomen. They didn't know what it was. Um, it took a couple weeks to to schedule all of the doctors, and I and I got lucky because a lot of 
A lot of doctors wanted to work on me because it was such a bizarre case. Oh, wow. They wanted to write a journal article afterwards, and I'm, I'm supposed they probably did. Um, <laughs> but it took a couple of weeks to line that all up, and it was, it was going to be 10 hours of surgery to try to extract this thing. Um, but in those two weeks, you can imagine how bad that sucks. You had to, you had to get a living will. You had to, we had to go to the, the bank and make sure that Terry had enough money to, to keep the house and all that stuff sure. you would imagine. Um, but you also think like you have time to, to reflect on my then fairly young life. And I'm sure everybody says this when they get a, a severe diagnosis, I'm not done yet, mm-hmm. but I wanted to be able to say to myself the next time, um, I, I did what I tried to do. I didn't succeed at everything, but, but I'm going to feel good about what I did in my life. And I tell that to young people because so many people are afraid of the future. They're afraid to take risks. Um, they're afraid of COVID. They're afraid of whatever they're afraid of. Everybody has all these fears. And my advice is live your life and take some risks. Um, because if you're young, you don't you think you're going to last live forever, but you're not. And it would be better to live life in its fullest. And that's both personally, but professionally, like like do something that matters to you. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't do the thing that matters to everybody else. Do the thing that matters to you. And obviously once, once I came out of surgery, I came out of surgery and the doctor congratulated my wife because he's like, we can fix this. And it turns out to have been a different type of tumor. It was a, it was a seminoma tumor, which was um, treatable with a fairly new chemotherapy. So what would have been a death sentence turned into like 90 plus survival rate. Um, so and that, you know, surviving, like going through chemo and all that stuff was a insane slog. It was very difficult, but in the process, you're like, once I got back on my feet, it kind of radicalized me. Like my, my tolerance for professional BS and waiting around <laughs> and waiting for everybody to be comfortable with, with taking it to the next level. I just didn't put up with it anymore because I'm like, the clock is ticking, guys. Right. We got to do this. So it probably made me a little bit insufferable afterwards because I'm like, <laughs> let's go. Let's right. go. We got to do this. Let's go. But but I also think that's where some of the cool things we were just talking about, like some of the risks we took in the early days of the Tea Party movement, mm-hmm. like I think it was transformational. And that's cool. Like that's the cool part in life. When you look back. Right. You probably wouldn't have been as bold to yeah. to do all this stuff yeah. if not for this life changing experience. Is it fair to say that that's the biggest turning point in your life? Then, yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, I, I think about like I, I, I was describing my early career as as sort of a climber within the conservative slash GOP movement. Um, none of that stuff really impresses me anymore. The yeah. stuff I did after I survived cancer. I'm, I would be more proud of that stuff. Yeah, I can understand. That's that's awesome, man. Okay, so you've obviously, in your career, crossed paths with numerous celebrities, uh, particularly in the political world. Is there any story, whether good or bad, that you would care to share with us of, of someone that you've met along the way that's uh, made an impression on you and stuck in your memory bank? Yeah, so like I worked in Washington, D.C., and and in most offices in Washington, D.C., people will have a wall of pictures of politicians they met. 
And, and I met all those guys. And I have some of those pictures because sometimes you're forced to take them. <laughs> um, but I always, had, I always had this jerky libertarian, like, I don't want to stand in line to get my picture with a politician. Right. Um, so as a result, I, don't, I, I met Reagan, but I don't have a picture with him. Oh. Um, and now I, I sort of regret that one. I was going to say, that would have been a good one to have. <laughs> I, I do have a picture with George W. Bush, which I regret taking. So, <laughs> but what do Can you I do? trade in my George W. Bush picture for Reagan? But one of, one of my star moments, um, I was actually going to be on Fox Business. They used to have a show called Happy Hour okay. that they filmed in a bar. Uh, it was like the bull and the bear in midtown Manhattan. And I'm, I'm on this show called Happy Hour, and, and I'm finishing up the, the segment, and the host says, up next, Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. And I look oh. around, and, and Bobby Weir is standing right behind me. Did they have any idea? Oh, they knew, but I, I didn't no, know. No, I'm saying, did they have any idea how no. big of a fan you were? No, but uh, um, uh-huh. as, like, for whatever reason, like, and it's, and it's in this bar, which is now a studio. So it's a bar, uh-huh. so I'm drinking a beer. Okay. And I'm hanging out with Bob Weir for nice. like like a half hour. Like he was um he was just hanging out cool. and and for me that that was kind of cool. He's he's a hopeless lefty, but <laughs> But it's fun to have a beer with. Yeah. Yeah, like That's I cool, I don't man. um I don't cancel people because they right. disagree with me. Right. I think that would make life sort of boring. Right. I didn't ever put a Grateful Dead CD in because I wanted to talk politics with them, you know? Yeah, 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 I'm with you. I gotcha. Okay, so any regrets along the way that that still bug you? Uh, yeah, like a, a lot of regrets. Like you you could have endless regrets. And I've, I've thought about this because I've had, I've had um, significant disappointments in my professional life. And the challenge when, you, when you're trying to do something and you're trying to work with other people and you're trying to build something bigger than yourself, um, you have to trust people. Mm. And it's a double-edged sword because um, sometimes people you trust can, can really let you down. And it hurts more than professionally when that happens. But, and so certain, certain people I've trusted, I, I would be very disappointed in. But here's the thing. You, I wouldn't have done it any other way because the best things I've ever done in my life are based on trust. Mm. And you stick your neck out and they stick their neck out and they experiment and collaborate and all of a sudden you've just done something that no one thought you could do. Mm. Um, it has to be based on that sort of risk-taking with other people. Yeah, And I, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but I remember the first time Glenn got me on the phone because we were talking about collaborating. This would have been 2009 and he was grilling me and huh. he, and he, and then, and then he, <laughs> and then he had to meet with Steve Forbes who sat on our board and he was grilling Steve about, is this Matt guy for real? <laughs> that and, sounds right. and frankly, I, I don't know if Glenn's for real. Right. So we, we, we had this, this back and forth and, and we decided to collaborate. Apparently I passed the test. <laughs> and and together, um, like I, I I think you know that some of the things that we really accomplished during the Tea Party movement wouldn't have happened yeah. unless not just us, but a lot of people. Like right. um, conservatives and libertarians love to argue with each other about about the details of this and are you good enough on this? 
But sometimes you just got to put that aside and say, let's let's focus on these really big things that matter to us. So so um, that's not really a regret. I've turned your question because no, I that's think cool. you know sometimes you get burned, but it would it would be foolish to not risk trusting other people. I like it. I like it a lot. Is there anything on the Matt Kibbe bucket list that you'd like to accomplish at some point in your life? Um, you know, there's not that many things, actually, mm-hmm. um, because we've, um, Terry and I have lived very full lives, and both professionally and personally. I, I would love to get um, this book I'm working on done. Yeah, is this the, uh, the Love, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness? Yeah, and it's, I mean, maybe our lives are too full because we're so busy we don't necessarily have time to, to work on this. Right. And we we produce lots of uh, video content. I, I, I should say in the context of our latest project, which is now five years old, Free the People, um, we're, we're getting, and it, Free the People is basically a video production company. We produce content to turn kids on to liberty. That's our whole mission. Uh, young people consume video content, and and over the last five years, um, the chops of my team have gotten better and better, and and I think my goal is to continue to produce um, feature length documentary stories, but also like um, dramatic narrative stories. I want to I want to get into this culture because because I think. I think all these things that we believe in and the process of free people figuring stuff out is the most beautiful thing in the world. And too often we sound like, you know, we're just focused on downward sloping demand curves and supply chains and, and uh, modern monetary theory and all the stuff that we know are problems. But the story of liberty is, is a beautiful story about, about people working together to do things that no one thought they could do. And that might be a person or a family or or whatever it is. It's just about people pursuing their dreams. And and I feel like uh, efforts at conservative movie making and libertarian movie making is, is it's getting a lot better, but man, it's so on the nose, demanding that the audience agree with you. And and I, I think the 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 victory there would be um, just telling a beautiful story that makes people think. Yeah. Okay. And start to like question their pre-existing narrative. That's freethepeople.org? Yes. Okay, very good. So what would you ask people to do here? To go there, find videos, and just share them on social media, basically? Yeah, come come, uh, come check us out. Like freethepeople.org is basically a channel. Like it's a mini HBO Go uh-huh. where you can watch different things. You can, you can find, actually, you can find Kibbe on Liberty there as well as Blaze TV, but you can also find a lot of documentary work that we've done. We have a, a series called The Deadly Isms, which is is about the horrific things that happen when governments have too much power. Um, and and you're gonna find something that works for you. Um, a lot of this content is designed for young people who I would call liberty curious. They're uh, not- I like that. Know, they, they didn't read Atlas Shrugged and they don't watch Glenn Beck. Um, they, are trying to figure stuff out. So a lot of that is is just giving them the space to think for themselves. And and we think that's done through personal stories about real people struggling to solve real problems. And sometimes they're sad stories because um, the government has 
has done horrible things to them that prevent them from achieving their dreams. But sometimes they're beautiful stories about, about, like I said, people solving problems. And that, that to me is the space where I'm hoping a lot of us go in terms of, of engaging people outside of our, our tribe, right? Like it's, it's great to be with your tribe and it, it feels safe and comfortable and, and, it's, it's sort of restorative to, to sort of leave Washington, D.C. and come here and be with friends because D.C. is a very hostile place for our values. But right. at the same time, let's not, let's not forget that most people um, are looking for something and, and we, we could help them maybe find it. Very good. That's freethepeople.org. And I just love the way, like you said, it's, it's almost like um, a channel but it's got all these shows that yeah. and, and all these episodes. It's really cool, really well laid out. So be sure to share the videos there uh, with with those that need to be introduced to thoughts of liberty and 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 let's let's keep this thing going for as long as we can, please. Uh, obviously, we have freethepeople.org. Are there other places on social media or online uh, that you'd like people to check you out? I obviously know you from Kibbe on Liberty here at The Blaze, where we both work. Uh, any other places people can check you out? Um, I, I, as my wife will tell you, I spend way too much time on Twitter. Yeah, if you, you want, and me both. If you want my sort of hot political takes and philosophical takes, Twitter's a place. Uh-huh. If you want to see pictures of my cats and whatever beer I'm drinking, go to Instagram. Okay, but I know on, on Twitter it's M Kibbe. Yeah. K-I-B-B-E. Is it the same on Instagram or is it something different? I'm not sure, but <laughs> you, you'll know immediately because yeah. it's all Maine Coon cats and <laughs> and beers and That's you great. know I'm I'm on Facebook, but it's like Facebook is kind of a dumpster fire. Like I don't do. <laughs> rage bait and right. I don't yell no, at people. So that's, either. that's not really my style. No, thank you. All right, Matt Kibbe, you got to check him out, uh, all over the place. Um, just, just, uh, I just, one of these days I'm going to have to pick your brain on like political issues, stuff that's going on in the world. So, uh, but I appreciate you spending time to tell us about your life today, man. Thanks for joining cool. me. Yeah. Let's do it again. All right. I had such a great time chatting and getting to know Matt Kibbe. He's a really cool guy, and I appreciate you joining us for that conversation. Well, next week, we're going to sit down with singer, songwriter, and critical thinker Lena Bell. I hope you'll make time for that conversation. It's a week from now here on At The Mic. I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Please do give it five stars over at Apple iTunes or Spotify. You could even check us out at youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. That's youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. The kinder you are to this podcast, the more likely it is that new folks will discover these conversations and make them a part of their routine. Don't forget, you can always drop us a note through atthemikeshow.com and all of the over 100 episodes that have been created are waiting for you to go catch up if maybe you have some past episodes you need to go and listen to. Well, until that next time, I hope you will go be free and thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. 